Well, glad you guys are here this morning. So this morning, we're going to continue on in the series that we started last week called Understanding the Old Testament. And this series really birthed out of some conversations that I've had with folks um, about the first part of our Bible. So if you're newer to the Bible, you know, it's kind of broken down into two big sections. We have the Old Testament, which is like the first two-thirds, really three-fourths maybe even of the Bible. And then we have the New Testament. The Old Testament is everything. It's all before Jesus, right? And so if you're a Christian, like we, we really believe that um, Jesus is the key to forgiveness and grace and salvation and eternal life. And we can be inclined to just focus on the stuff about Jesus, right? And we can look at the Old Testament and go, I don't, I don't really know what role that should have in my life. It's confusing to me. I don't know what applies to me and what doesn't apply to me. And it can cause us, if we're not careful, to just never read the Old Testament and not really know what's going on in the Old Testament. And so um, in this series, I thought, I really want us to dig in. I want to make the Old Testament accessible to us, like to bring some clarity to us, because it's one big story. We talked about this last week. It's really one big story that God is telling us from the very beginning of creation, the beginning of the Old Testament, all through to the end of the New Testament, and even us today. And so last week, I summarized it. I summarized it this way. If I'm going to write, like, what's the big story of the Bible, this is how I'd say it. It's the unfolding story of God lovingly calling the most precious part of his creation, that's us, to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, with the promise of transformation, he changes us, and eternal life to those that say yes to him, but condemnation and punishment to those that reject him. And he said, this is really the story of the Bible, and it's one story. It's not two stories. And so we looked at it, and we compared it to uh, like a movie. So imagine this. Somebody says to you, man, I saw the best movie ever. And you go out, and you rent the Blu-ray, or you, know, you go on Netflix or whatever, and you check out the movie. Where would you start that movie? Like somewhere in the middle about an hour and 10 minutes in, something like that? No, right? Like we would never do that because if we did that, we wouldn't know the context. We wouldn't know what's built up to that point. Like we would never do that with a movie. But why do we do that? Why can we be tempted to do that with the greatest, most powerful story ever told, right? Like it's one story and it's easy for us to go, well, I'm just going to start in the middle of the story. I'm going to pick up in the New Testament. But when we do that, there is so much richness that we miss in the first part of the story, in the Old Testament. And there is so much in the Old Testament that makes the New Testament make more and more and more sense. And so in this series, so this is a little bit different series than, um, than we've done in the past. And last week we started, I threw a bunch of stuff at you. I realized that. I gave you a lot of information. What we did last week was we gave a little bit of an overview of the Old Testament. I kind of did it in layers for you. So I told you kind of the big picture of the Old Testament in a few different ways. And I realized that that's a lot of information, but hopefully some of that stuck. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to jump into the very beginning. So the first, it's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And I, and I guess I want to challenge you um, again this morning. I'm going to give you a lot this morning. And so if you're somebody who's a note taker, like if you sit here this morning and you genuinely want to get to know the Bible better, especially the Old Testament better, I'd really encourage you, like on the back of your program is a place for, oh no, it's not. 
on the edges of your program as a place that you could write notes. Actually, the insert here is a place for you to do that. But I really encourage you to maybe write some of this stuff down so when you start reading it, it will help make sense of the entire thing, okay? And so this morning, we're going to jump into that. So if you got a Bible, grab it, flip it open to page one, <laughs> Genesis chapter one, page one. As you're flipping there, let me say um, actually two other things real quickly. In your program, um, we have these classes that we talk about sometimes called E4 classes, and they're essentially like online things that we've done, classes that we've set up, where there's a bunch of video content, there's things that you can download, but we have them on a bunch of different topics, and one of them is um, Old Testament survey, so it's this sort of understanding the Old Testament. I really encourage you, if you're interested in digging a little bit deeper, they're well-done classes done by a bunch of the pastors at the various campuses of Grace Church, so this is a really good one if you're looking to dig in deeper. Um, the second thing I want to tell you is um, I, I made a mistake, I want to clarify, I made a mistake last week. I think I did it in both services, actually. I probably would have done it in all three services if we'd had Saturday night service last week, but um, I want to clarify. So as I was explaining the Old Testament and the New Testament, I said, and the Old Testament has 39 different books, which it does. Then I said, and the New Testament has 26 different books, which it doesn't. It has 27 different books, um, which I knew. I just had sort of a brain malfunction. I'm sure I've taught them that numerous times, but I wanted to clarify that with you. I made a mistake with that last week, so just FYI, okay? So, okay, so you're in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is the Pentateuch, and so these are the five books that are in the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I would love it if you would repeat that with me. Ready? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm going to ask you to repeat those about seven times this morning because actually and there's a purpose I think there's value in memorizing some of this stuff like understanding the flow of the Bible understanding the different books and like having it memorized is really helpful and this morning we're going to summarize a lot of it as well so um, if you would just bear with me and repeat those I think it'll help us memorize those things so um, the Pentateuch the Pentateuch is these first five books um, in our Bible it's five books but actually when it was originally written it was one book Right? In fact, the word Pentateuch itself, what it means is one book in five parts. That's what the book means. So originally when it was written, it was written as one book, and we kind of divide it into five books or five parts in our Bibles. And the author of the Pentateuch, I'm just going to give you some kind of background information, right, to get us all on the same page. The author of the Pentateuch of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is a guy named Moses. And Moses is a guy that we actually meet in the Pentateuch, in, in the book of Exodus. We get to know who, who Moses is. So Moses is a guy that, I'll give you more information about him here in a second, but essentially he's a guy that God raises up when Israel, when the Jews are enslaved in Egypt, God raises him up to be the leader of Israel who's going to help them get out of Egypt, get out of the slavery in Egypt, right? And so Moses lived about 1,400 to 1,500 years before Jesus. So Jesus was about 2,000 years ago to us. So Moses was about 34 to 3,500 years ago. That's when he lived. And so about 1400 BC, just before Moses died, he finished writing the Pentateuch. He finished writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And right when he finished writing it, they knew that this was a significant part of their nation, of their people. And so they kept the Pentateuch in, uh, with the most sacred, 
maybe the most sacred space in all of Israel. They kept it with the Ark of the Covenant. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 31. It says, after Moses finished writing in a book the words of the law, this law, from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So it was sacred. As soon as he wrote it, as soon as it was finished, this is a very, very important text to them. And if you notice here, it's called the book of the law, right? And so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's called the book of the law. And that book of the law, this is where we get the word Torah from. Some of you maybe have heard that word Torah before. What Torah means is law. It's a Hebrew word that means law or instruction. And so Torah is often the word that's used to describe those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The other word that I've used a few times already to describe it is this word Pentateuch. Pentateuch, I already said what it means. It means one book in five parts. It's a Greek word, right? But essentially, it's, they're referring to the exact same thing. So most people, when they talk about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, some might call it the Pentateuch, some might call it the Torah. Most of the time, they mean the exact same thing. It's the book of law. It's the writings of Moses. Make sense? Tracking with me? Okay. So I want to tell you, let me be clear about this too. Last week, one of the layers that I gave you in understanding the Old Testament is to understand the different literary genres of the Old Testament, right? So the Old Testament's written in a bunch of different styles, a bunch of different styles of writing. And so I know you can't read this too well, but here they are. Historical narrative, law, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, and apocalyptic. And there's a bunch of books in each of those, right? And what we said last week is we understand those books differently depending on the genre that they're written in, right? And so we might look at the Torah, the law, and assume that it's all books of law. But the Torah, those five books, actually cover two literary genres. They're written in two literary genres. You know what they are? One, one of them's law. The other is historical narrative. So when you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're written as the telling of the story of history and the different laws that God gave to his chosen people. And so as historical narrative and law, how do you think we take those writings? Do you think we take them as kind of flowery, figurative metaphor, or do you think we take them literally? Literally, right? And so we believe that the things that are written about there actually happen the people that are written about there actually lived, right? Okay, so before we jump into the books themselves, I wanna take us, I really wanna spend some time digging into each of the books quickly, okay? But before I do that, I wanna say this too. So last week I gave you a timeline. This was another one of those layers that I gave you. So I gave you a timeline last week that kinda of just talks about uh, the span of time throughout which all of the Old Testament and actually all of the New Testament were written in. Um, if you look at that, you'll see that the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, cover a time period from like the beginning of time. They tell the story from the beginning of time, the beginning of all creation, up to about 1400 BC. That's when Moses dies. And so they tell that entire story. And if you think about that, maybe one of the questions you have is, well, if it tells the story from the creation of the world until 1400 BC, and Moses lived right at that last period between 1500 and 1400 BC, how would Moses know all this other stuff? Right? Like he didn't live through it. Like how would he get all of this information? He wrote all five of the books. 
How would he get all the information from the beginning of creation until the time that he lived? I think it's a fair question. So let me answer that in two ways. First, some of that would have been passed down to him by his ancestors. And so his great, 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 I don't know how many greats, great, great, great grandfather, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they would have passed these things, some of this history of their people on to their children and their children and their children and their children, right? Like some of this would surely, in fact, the Jews were incredible at this. They would pass on their history orally. So a lot of it was not written down. They would memorize these things, these stories with incredible detail, incredible detail. So surely some of this stuff that Moses writes about would have been, he would have learned from his ancestors. He would have learned from his, um, from the people, his family before him. But that being said, far more of what he writes about, you know how he would have learned it, how he would have gotten to know it? From God himself. So when you read the Pentateuch and you read the life of Moses, Moses was a guy who had a relationship with God that was different, I think, than anyone else that ever lived. Like he sat with God and he spoke. In fact, this is what it says in uh, Exodus 33, 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Like think about that. Like he had this relationship, this intimacy with God where he would talk to him somehow similarly as I'm talking to you right now, face to face. And with that, like that amount of clarity, God somehow expressed to him, maybe it was audibly, I kind of think it was, I don't know, but somehow he expressed to him with such clarity that Moses could write down with all of this detail the very beginnings of the world and all of this stuff that happened before his life. Right? Like Moses had, it says that when he, walked, when he came out of his time with God, his face glowed. <laughs> like he talked to God face to face and like he was radiant, it says. And so we imagine like what in the world would that have been like? So we can with a lot of confidence, I say, I think, say that what Moses writes down here that he didn't personally experience, he learned from God himself, right? Okay, so um, before I jump into the books themselves, let me recommend two books to you that might be helpful for you. So if you're looking to understand the Old Testament a little bit better, um, two books that are short books that are easy to read, but also really helpful in connecting some of the dots of the Old Testament. The first one is by a guy named Mark Driscoll. It's a great title of a book. He says, a book you'll actually read on the Old Testament. (laughs) That's the name of the book, a book you'll actually read in the Old Testament. And it's a short book. It's not even 100 pages. It's, it's actually kind of a square book, so it's not a huge, um, difficult book to read. But he does a really good job of connecting some of those dots. And then he talks, he gives you at least a paragraph, usually a little more than that, on each of the different books of the Bible. And so that's, it's a really, I would really encourage you to check it out. The second book is called Know Your Bible. Um, this is a cool book too. So this book, the whole thing, is um, there's about a page-ish to a page and a half on all 66 books of the Bible, okay? That's what it does. And in each of these pages, it gives you kind of some basic details. It gives you a description of the book in 10 words or less, which I think is really helpful. Like if we could just have an idea of what each of the books is about in a sentence and about a sentence, that's super helpful. In fact, I'm gonna give you that for each of these five books in the Pentateuch here in a few minutes. I get it from this book. And then it talks about like one, it gives you one significant quote from the book and then like a so what, like what do we do with it? So anyway, it's two bucks. I think you can get it for like two bucks on Amazon. It's super cheap, Um, but it is a great book if you want to understand the Old Testament a little bit better. 
So um, here's what I'm going to do with the rest of the time. I want to take about two or three minutes on each of the five books of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, and I just want to kind of just tell you the story from a high-level view, okay, so that we have a basic understanding of it. Then I want to tell you, um, I want to talk about something that I'll bet many of us have had questions on from these first five books. In fact, before service last night, I had somebody come up to me and go, hey, somebody asked me this, how would you answer this? And I go, wait, I'm going to tell you in the sermon. So I'm going to take a few minutes and I want to talk about that. And then I want to end with something that Jesus says that's personally challenging to me, where he sums it all up. So he sums up the entire Torah, the entire Pentateuch in just a couple little verses. And so I want to end with that, okay? So first five books, we'll start with Genesis. Hopefully you're there in Genesis chapter one. So what are the first five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Very good. How would we summarize Genesis in 10 words or less? Well, how about this way? God creates the world and chooses a special people. What's Genesis about? It's about God creating the world and choosing a special people. So the book of Genesis starts out in the beginning. That's how the book starts. And in the beginning, God creates everything. Everything that exists is created by him. And so it starts right out showing God's power. God's mighty, he's big, he's powerful. And he creates everything from nothing. Like you and I can create things, right? We're made in his image. We're made to create things. But I, so we can take a lump of clay and we can turn it into a vase, or we could take a bunch of parts and turn it into technology, into a computer. God creates everything that we see from nothing, right? And so Genesis from the very beginning shows, it demonstrates God's power, God's might, God's creative abilities. Now, after he creates the masterpiece of his creation, that's us, you and I are God's masterpiece. After he creates the masterpiece of his creation, it's not long before we malfunction. It's not long before we rebel against God. And we rebel, and we, you know, it's interesting, when you read the beginning of Genesis, I had a question this morning about Genesis chapter six, which is a crazy verse. I mean, when you, when you read the beginning of Genesis and you see like how bad the world got, it got bad, so bad that God said, I need to just hit the reset button. And he does. You know what he does? He sends a flood, right? Maybe you remember reading about this or hearing about this. God sends a flood that everything in the world is wiped out except one man, Noah, and his family, and a bunch of animals on his boat, on his ark. And from them, then God replenishes the earth. And so it's not long after the flood and all of that, that God chooses one man, a man named Abraham, and his wife Sarah to be the patriarch and matriarch of a nation of people that he would specially bless and through whom he would show himself to the world. He would show the world his power and his holiness and his character and his love. Two older people that had no children at the time, he says, I choose you who have no children and your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. He makes a covenant with them. And he says, and through you, the world will be blessed. You know why? Because your people are going to give the world me. You're going to show the world who I am. And so when you read through the bulk of, of the book of Genesis, it's telling the story of these patriarchs. It's, it's telling the story of Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. Jacob's got another name. You know what it is? Israel, 
right? That's where we get the name Israel from. Jacob has a second name. And then Jacob has sons. He's got 12 of them. Those 12 sons have a bunch of kids and they turn into the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the nation of Israel goes all the way back to Jacob and his 12 sons, Isaac, his dad, and Abraham before him. Make sense? So this is what the book of Genesis talks about. The book ends with Jacob's son, Joseph, being the most, really the second most powerful person in the nation of Egypt. There's this famine going on at the time. And Jacob, got it's an amazing story. I'll, I'll challenge you to read it here in a second. It's an amazing story. God had put uh, Joseph in this position to be able to be a blessing to his family and, and tons of people. And so there's this famine. His whole family ends up moving to Egypt and they're provided for, they're cared for. That's how the book ends, right? So, so I'll do this with each of the books. If, if I could recommend one thing to read in the book of Genesis, there's, there's so much, but if I could recommend one thing, I would challenge you to read the story of Joseph. Joseph's story, if you've never read it or it's been a while since you've read it, man, so it's nine chapters long. It's Genesis 37 to 45. It leads almost to the end of Genesis, but it is a powerful um, story, his story of God taking someone who was put in terrible circumstances and blessing him through it and using him through it to be a blessing to other people. So good. So that's the book of Genesis. Um, the second one, things turn pretty quickly in the book of Exodus. So what are the first five books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How would we summarize the book of Exodus in 10 words or less? Well, how about this way? God delivers his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. God delivers his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. So by the time we get to the book of Exodus, some time has passed. So we end the book of Genesis and Jacob and his sons are safe and provided for in Egypt, right? They're cared for. Time has gone by by the time we get to the book of Exodus. And all of them now have died. They've all, they've all passed away, but their families have grown. They've had lots and lots of kids. And what was once just, you know, dozens of people now has become thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, right? In fact, they grow so fast that the nation of Egypt kind of freaked out. And they're like, uh, we got to do something about this or they're going to take over our land. And so they enslave them. They made all of these people their slaves. And so Pharaoh and the Egyptians were oppressive to them. And it's not long before they start crying out to God for help, for rescue. And it's at this point that God, that we meet Moses. It's at this point that God raises up this guy named Moses to rescue and bring his people to safety. And so God tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that I said, let the people go, let my people go, right? And so Moses does. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, God says, let my people go. You know how Pharaoh responds to that? You, you read it in uh, Exodus 5 too. Essentially, he says, who's the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord. This, this is actually what it says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. That's how Pharaoh responds. And essentially, God's response is, I will show you who I am and why you need to obey me. And so Pharaoh's not going to let the people go. God uses his power. He demonstrates his power and his might 
And he sends plague after plague after plague. Ten of these supernatural things that make life really, really hard for the Egyptians that show them God's power and God's authority. And eventually, they get it. And they're like, wow, we can't take this anymore. Okay, we're going to let them go, just as you said. And so they let them go. So all of these Jews leave. And as they're leaving, they're a little bit gone. And all of a sudden, the Egyptians go, wait a minute, what are we doing? There's a lot of people that are our slaves. Our economy is going to tank if we let them go. They change their mind. They start chasing them. And God shows his power in another way, incredible supernatural way. Maybe you've seen a movie about this. There's this Red Sea, the sea in front of them, and God splits the Red Sea so that they can get through, so that they can escape on dry land. And they get through, and as the Egyptians come through to chase them, God brings the water back, and they're killed. God rescues his people in the most supernatural, profound way. And he makes a promise to them that they are going to go. He has a promised land that he's giving them. A a beautiful land overflowing with milk and honey, like an abundant land, right? And so they're headed into the promised land. That's where they go. While they get through um, the Red Sea, between them and the promised land is a desert. It's Sinai right? And while they're in the desert, some things happen. One of the things happen is God begins to give them his laws. And so a holy God says to them, if I am holy and you are my people, I am going to show you how you must then live. And so he gives them some laws or some commandments. How many do you think he starts out with? 10, right? This is where he gives them the 10 commandments, okay? And so anyway, the book of Exodus kind of ends with that. It ends with Israel moving on their way through the desert into God's promised land. Make sense? So if I'm going to challenge you to read one thing in the book of Exodus, I'd encourage you to read Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And I'll bet maybe some of us could read that and go, man, I remember some of this stuff, you know, or I didn't realize that was in there. I challenge you to read it. This is part of God's heart for us, right? Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. So that leads us to Leviticus. What are the first five books of the Bible? Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Very good. How would we summarize Leviticus in 10 words or less? How about this way? A holy God explains how to worship him and live. A holy God explains how to worship him and live. And so the second half of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus and part of Deuteronomy focuses on these laws. God gives these laws, these special laws to his special people. And so because God is holy, he's pure, he's uncontaminated, his people should also be holy and pure and uncontaminated. And so he gives them a bunch of laws that are binding on their lives. If you're my people, if you're in my family, this then is how you should live. And the laws that he gives them throughout the book of Leviticus and the rest of the Torah really fall into three categories. I'll explain these a little bit more here in a few minutes. But they really fall into three categories. He gives them some ceremonial laws. He gives them some civil laws. And he gives them some moral laws. Okay? So when you read the book of Leviticus, you see those different kinds of laws. And they range from like how to worship God. Um, they talk, this is where we, the, you read about the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices for sin, um, the duties of priests, um, the uh, responsibilities in relationships, like how are we supposed to relate to one another, dietary laws, uh, their holy days, their feast days, all that stuff's in there. 
It's also in Leviticus where God chooses one family line, one special family to be his priests. So these are the ones that have the most intimate access to him. And so we've talked about Moses. Moses has a brother named Aaron. And God says, listen, from now on, Aaron and all of his sons are going to be my priests, right? They are going to have this special connection, these special privileges with me. This all happens in the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus, this is how I remember what Leviticus is about. Leviticus starts with an L, right? Leviticus. Laws start with an L, right? And so when I think of Leviticus, I think of laws. That's essentially what the book is about. If I'm going to challenge you to read one particular thing, one section in Leviticus, Leviticus 18 to 22 is a really interesting little span in that book. Because essentially it talks about the daily lives of God's people. Like what does God God's holy chosen people, what should their lives look like on a day-to-day basis? It's actually a really interesting read. So that's the book of Leviticus. How about the book of Numbers? What are the first five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You guys are doing so good with this. How would we summarize the book of Numbers in 10 words or less? Faithless Israelites wander 40 years in in the wilderness of Sinai. Let me read that again. Faithless Israelites wander 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. That's the book of Numbers is about. So when you read the book of Numbers, guess what it has a lot of in it? Numbers, right? There's a reason that it's called the book of Numbers. In fact, it starts out with some numbers. It starts out with God saying to Moses, I want you to take a census of Israel, of the nation. Actually, it says take a census of all the men in Israel. And so what they come up with is that there are over 600,000 just men in Israel. In fact, that doesn't even include the tribe of Leviticus. And so you think about that, six, it's actually 603,550 men. So how many people do you think that is? I don't know, 2 million, 3 million, maybe 4 million people? Like you can imagine how hard that would be for the nation of Egypt. You got, say, four million slaves and all of a sudden, and your economy is based on them, and all of a sudden, those four million slaves leave. Like you can imagine why they didn't want to see them go, right? And so the book of Numbers is essentially about Israel wandering around in the desert for 40 years. So this is interesting. So the trip from Egypt to the promised land is only about 200 miles, from, from one place to the next place, is only about 200 miles. And so they, the experts, the theologians, estimate that to move that many people over 200 miles should take about two to three weeks, somewhere around in there. Instead, it takes them 40 years. You know why? Because they rebel against God. And so put yourself in their shoes. Like They had just seen God do miraculous things, like amazing supernatural things. They know God is real. And they go off into the desert and they start complaining they're like, man, I, what I would do for some of the food back in Egypt, what I would do for you know, some of the luxury, even though we were a slave, some of the luxuries back then, they start grumbling and complaining and rebelling against God. They're faithless. And so finally God says, that's enough. That's enough. Here's what's going to happen. None of you are going to enter my promised land. None of you who are alive right now are going to make it to the promised land. You're going to wander out here in the desert for 40 years until every single one of you is dead. Your kids will get to go into the promised land. And so that's exactly what happens. You read the book of Numbers, that's what it's about. It's about them kind of wandering around, some of the experiences in the desert, in Sinai. Now, I'll tell you this, I remember when I first became a Christian and I started reading the Bible and I'm like 
reading it for the first time through the eyes of faith. Like I remember some of the stories when I was a kid, but like reading it through the eyes of faith. And I was like, so I could not get enough of it. And I remember somebody saying to me, yeah, wait till you get to the book of Numbers. It's like really boring. It's a bunch of numbers. And I read the book of Numbers. And listen, I know like some of it is a little tedious. Some of it is numbers. There's parts in the Old Testament that are genealogies. And you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. I, I get that. But the book of Numbers has some incredible, incredibly powerful stories in it as well. If I was going to recommend one passage for you to read Numbers, Numbers 22 to 24, about Balaam, a guy named Balaam who's sent to curse the nation of Israel. God turns that into blessing the nation of Israel and a donkey that talks. How interesting is that, right? Let's check that out. Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Numbers 22 to 24. So that's the book of Numbers, essentially them wandering around in the desert for 40 years. How about Deuteronomy? What are the first five books of the Bible? One last time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Very good. Some of you got ahead of us. Very good. Um, so what is Deuteronomy about in 10 words or less? How about this? Moses reminds the Israelites of their history and God's laws. Moses reminds the Israelites of their history and God's laws. So, so Deuteronomy is one of those books that has multiple genres of literature in it. So this is important for us to understand. So we already talked about the Pentateuch, the Torah in itself as a whole, has historical narrative and it has law in it. The book of Deuteronomy has historic, historic narrative, it has law, it also has some poetry in it. And so it's important to read that the right way, right? And so Deuteronomy, what the word means is second law. That's what it means. And so the book is structured around these sermons that Moses preached at the end of his life to this new generation, to this next generation. So some of the stuff, there's actually a lot of stuff that you read in the book of Deuteronomy that you're like, that sounds familiar. I feel like I've read that before. Well, you have. It was already talked about or experienced earlier in the Pentateuch. But now he's got this new generation of people. All the other ones, by the time this is written, all the other ones have died in the desert. And so it's the end of Moses' life and he's writing to this new generation. He's like, remember this, know this, this is important, don't do this, right? And he's reminding them over and over. So by the end of the book, everybody who is in that previous generation that's been wandering around in the desert for 40 years dies. And Moses actually dies as well. He lives to be 120 years old. And he dies. And Moses had a little bit of a rebellious experience with God too. We, we might read it and go, I don't understand why that's rebellious. But he, he did. He kind of rebelled against God in a way. And so God even said to Moses, you also are not going to enter my promised land. But he gave him a glimpse of it. And so this is kind of how the, the, toward the end of the book, he gives him a glimpse into the promised land. But Joshua, his protege, is the one, which is the next book of the Bible, by the way. It's after Deuteronomy. Joshua is the one who's going to lead the nation into the promised land. So that's kind of what Deuteronomy is about. If I would challenge you to read something in Deuteronomy, one thing, Deuteronomy 6 is an incredible chapter, especially if you sit here and you're a parent, because it's about passing on, like, what does it look like for us to pass on our commitment to God to the next generation? Really, really cool chapter. So, so that's really quick, it's two, three minutes on each of the different books, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a kind of big picture idea of the flow of each of the different books of the Pentateuch. Let me quickly shift gears here and say something about the law. So we already said, 
the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Torah means law. These are the books of the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's 611 or 613, depending on how you count them, different laws that God specifies in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. It makes up, so of those five books, 68.5% of them are laws and commands that God gives them. And so there's a lot of laws in it. And maybe you sit here and you go, okay, there's a lot there. We live on the other side of the cross. There's stuff in there that I don't know how it makes sense in my context, like in my life. So here's a question. What role should these laws play in our lives today? Like as you read those 611 or 613 different laws, what role should they play in our lives today? If we believe that scripture passage that was in the little bumper video before I came up, all scripture is God-breathed, it's useful for you know, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. If it's all useful and all important, like what role should these, all these laws have in our lives today? Like for example, in Deuteronomy 22.11, it says, you must not wear clothing made of wool and linen woven together. That's a law. Any of you breaking the law right now? Right? That's the law. How about this one? Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I'm the Lord. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? How about this one? Anyone, this is uh, Levit Leviticus 20. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Such a person is guilty of a capital offense. Capital offense to dishonor your father and mother. We should all be dead, right? Like we should all be killed. How about this one? Do not trim your hair. Do not trim off the hair on your temples or trim your beards. Anybody cut their sideburns recently? You are guilty of breaking the law. How about this one? The priests must not shave their heads or trim their beards or cut their bodies. I'm not a priest, but I'm probably the closest thing we got, right? I shaved my head this morning, right? So like, what do, what do we do with those laws? And I'll bet you're like me. In fact, I've talked to numerous people over this weekend that have said similar things, that there's people that look at these laws, maybe they're anti-religious people, you know, maybe they're anti-Christian people or anti-Jewish people, and they look at these laws and they read them and they go, see, like, those are ridiculous. Like, there's no way, I'm not going to live by those laws and you're not going to live by those laws. You just sort of pick and choose whichever ones that you want to do, right? And, and, and maybe they even take it a step further and they go, you know what? In fact, some of those laws are just evil. Like, you think it's right to kill a child because they're disobedient to their parents? I don't want to have anything to do with that. Like, how would you answer that question if somebody says those things to you? Like, what parts of the law are important to us? Which parts of the law are we supposed, like, apply to us? Maybe that's a better way to say it. Apply to our lives. Well, let me say this. Without getting into too deep of a conversation for our purposes this weekend, let me say this. Um, uh, at the person asking that question, it shows that they don't have a great understanding of the Old Testament. And here's what I mean by that. So kind of go back to our movie metaphor. Right? It's like they've seen a little part of the movie and they're making assumptions about all of the rest of the movie. Like asking that question shows that you don't really understand what the Old Testament is about and specifically what the Torah is about. So let me tell you how I'd answer that question very quickly, uh, or very simply. There's the, I said earlier, there's three basic types of laws that God gives us in the Old Testament. We have these ceremonial laws, we have civil laws, and we have moral laws. So the ceremonial laws, essentially, they dealt with how God's 
chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, were supposed to come to him and worship. Like God's character, who we are, how is it appropriate for them to worship him? That's essentially what the ceremonial laws are about. The civil laws dealt with the nation of Israel, this, this ancient group of people, this nation of Israel, and how they should be governed as a political entity. And so that's essentially what those laws were about. They were specific to that group of people. The moral laws dealt with more absolute right and wrong, morality, our duties toward God and to other people, and that the moral law is based on the unchanging character of God, right? It's based on the unchanging character of God. So like the Ten Commandments, for example, are a great example of moral law. And so you look at those three and you go, okay, which of those apply to us? Like which of those apply, that we sit on the other side of the cross, which of those apply to our lives today? And we look at them individually and we go, ceremonial laws? No, ceremonial laws don't apply to us today. They were specific for this group of people, this nation of Israel, on how they were supposed to worship God, and they pointed to this Messiah who was coming. You know, you, when you read some of these ceremonial laws, it is so fascinating to read them on the side of the cross that we're at, because we look at them and we're like, oh, I can see why God gave those laws. Like, for example, animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices were part of the ceremonial law. And you go, well, what's that about? Why did God do that? Why did God, like, what, what's, what's it about? Well, God was showing them that the shedding of blood is necessary to pay for sin. Like, when we do wrong, when we do things against the moral character of God, the shedding of blood is necessary. It's necessary to kill an animal. And then we look at that and we go, well, geez, look at how that pointed to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He shed his blood to pay for sin. And so the ceremonial laws like that were fulfilled in Jesus. And so we go, those don't apply to us. We are not bound by those, right? How about the civil laws? Civil laws are maybe a little bit more obvious. We are not part of the ancient nation of Israel. We're just not. And so those laws that were specific to that nation, usually the civil laws dealt with when somebody breaks a moral law, then there's a civil law with a punishment, right? And so, for example, uh, moral law is honor your father and mother. The civil law is, and when you don't, you should be killed, right? That's, that's the civil law. That's specific to that nation, God's chosen people that he was going to use to show the world his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. And so we look at that and we go, those don't apply to us either, right? How about the moral law? The moral law is a little bit different. So we look at that and we go, so again, honor your father and mother, one of the Ten Commandments. That's part of the moral law. That's an absolute, that's part, it's based on God's character, right? On, on God's person and who he is. And so that, along with the other parts of the moral law, we go, that does apply to our lives today because it's based on who God is. It's based on how God is wired. And so I should obey my parents. Why? because that's pleasing to God and it's consistent with his character. The this, this, uh, sixth commandment, murder, thou shalt not murder, right? I shouldn't murder, why? Because murder is displeasing to God and it goes against his character. It always will, it always has and it always will. That is part of the moral law that is binding forever. You should not murder other people, it goes against God and his character. How about the next one, stealing. I shouldn't steal from someone. 
Why? Because it's displeasing to God. It always has been and it always will be. And it goes against his character. And so we look at the moral law and we're like, that does apply to us. And when you, it's, it's interesting, when you go into the New Testament and then you read about Jesus and his life and what he taught, so much of what he taught was the moral law. Like, how do my followers live? Will you live this way? You love one another. You will be known by your love. You'll be known that you're one of my followers by your love. That's all part of the moral law. Read Matthew 5. Over and over again, Jesus is teaching the moral law. And so we step back and we go, what role does that have in our lives? All these different 611 or 613 different laws. Well, we can look at all of them and understand God's character better, his holiness, what he values, what he believes is right and wrong. So there's value in all of them. But what applies to us, what's kind of more relevant in our lives, is the moral laws. You tracking with me? So ceremonial laws, no. Civil laws, no. Moral laws, yeah. Okay, so I've thrown a bunch at you. Let me, let me end with this. Hopefully it's, it's kind of starting to make sense a little bit. Um, if, if you had to, like maybe you look at all this and you're like, man, I know it's five books, but it's five pretty long books and there's a lot of stuff in there, 611, 613 different laws. There's a lot. I'm a little bit overwhelmed. Like, could you give me the Cliff Notes version of all of this, right? Like, if you're going to boil it down, how would you boil it down? Well, Jesus actually does that for us. And he does it in a way that when we think, when we apply it to our lives, is really, really challenging. So he has some religious leaders come up to him and they want to stump him. They want to, like, try to catch him in his words with something. And they ask him and they say, what is the most important of all of the law, of all of the Torah, specifically Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, of all of that, what's the most important? I want you to see how Jesus answers this. This is in Matthew 22. So they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Here's how Jesus replied. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus, what's the most important? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. Another parallel passage adds strength. Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. You love yourself, right? Yes. Love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. Sacrificially, generously. Love God and love your neighbor. And I want to challenge you with that. You know, sometimes, I was talking to my kids about this yesterday morning. Sometimes we can look at um, like what it looks like to live as a Christian, to live as a follower of Jesus. And we can go, well, um, I go to church. That's what you're supposed to do, okay? I read my Bible. I'm even reading the Old Testament. That's what you're supposed to do. I'm praying. That's what you're supposed to do. Those, those things don't make us Christians, Right? What makes us Christian, in God's economy, what's most important is that we love him with everything that we've got. My heart, with my mind, with my soul, with my strength. Everything that I've got. And it's amazing when we do that, how it changes us. Like the moral law that we talked about that, that still is applicable to our lives. Like we don't do it to stay on God's good side. We don't do the right things to stay, obey to stay on God's good side. We do it because we love God and we know he loves us. And we go, and I want to do the right thing. I want to live my life in a way that's consistent with who he is. 
But it all comes from loving God more than anything. If you want to follow the Torah in your life, love God more than anything. And then allow his love to help you love other people the way that we love ourselves. That's how I challenge you this week. What does it look like for you to love God with everything you got? And what does it look like for you to love people? Next week, you guys, Van can come on up here. Next week, we're going to um, continue on and we're going to delve into the historical books. So we're going to start in uh, Joshua next week and we're going to get about halfway through them, hopefully about halfway through them. Okay, so let's pray.